You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast. With your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Thanks everyone for joining into the podcast. I actually just got back from a DIY mule deer hunt in Colorado with two of my good friends, Matt and Travis. I was successful in taking my first mule deer, and I uploaded a video of the trip to YouTube titled DIY Colorado Mule Deer 2017 on the DIY Sportsman channel. In this podcast, Boudreaux and I talk briefly about the story of the kill but then dive more into the specifics surrounding the gear we used on the trip, costs, lessons learned, etc. The hope is that this podcast will be able to answer some of the questions that guys coming from out east would hope to answer while planning a trip out to the mountains in September. When we get to the portion that deals with gear, it'll be helpful to look at a copy of my fully itemized gear list, which is available on DIY-Sportsman.com under the gear list section. It's also available in Microsoft Excel format for download and editing. But first, Boudreaux has been elk hunting in Utah, so he's going to give us a quick update on his hunt. Yeah, so I actually went out uh, went out yesterday uh, with a buddy. Went, I went to a new area. I've never been there before. It was interesting because we actually pushed mountain bikes um, with us for the ride down to be easier. So we probably went in probably two miles, um, two and a half miles. We got in there and heard a couple elk bugling right off the bat, seen... Uh, herd bull with a little satellite bull that was trying to steal his cows and he had probably had 30 cows in there and he was just bugling his head off and chasing that satellite bull around all morning bedded them up in the aspens and we tried to tried to make a move in there got in seen a satellite bull on one side of the ridge and they were all bedded on the other side of the ridge so we opted to just pass on him and try to drop down in there on that herd bull and his cows and we got into probably 50 yards of the cows, um, did a couple bugles trying to trying to get him to come out and run us off, and he ended up just rounding up the herd and taking them away from us. So we ended up seeing them cross a clearing a couple hundred yards away, and there was probably, I don't know, 35 head probably after everything was said and done. So that was that was the gist of the the hunt, and it was just kind of kind of a bummer because we got in so close but couldn't get a, a shot on anything. Was there still snow on the ground? A little bit, um, especially on the north-facing slopes, um, there was a little bit of snow. Um, that was kind of the interesting part about the mountain bikes riding out was we had to ride through a lot of snow on the mountain bikes on like an 18-inch wide trail, so needless to say, <laughs> I crashed a few times. <clears throat> just a regular mountain bike or a fat tire? Uh, just a regular mountain bike. I bet it was fun on the way back down, though. Uh, yeah, especially because mine had little to no brakes. So. <laughs> we actually joked about using mountain bikes. Um, but where we were, there was a ton of elevation gain. It was pretty steep country, so I don't know if it probably would have worked out as well as where you were at. I don't know. How steep yeah. was it where you guys were hunting? It, where we were hunting was fairly steep, but getting to there um, with the mountain bikes wasn't bad. The first probably half mile to get up onto the ridge or mile to get up onto the ridge was the worst part. Um, then once we were up on the ridge, it was pretty easy. Um, the trail was pretty smooth. We could side hill most of the bigger hills on the trail. So it really wasn't bad at all. Once we got up to the top, it was just, you know, getting up. Yeah, we were probably just under 10,000 feet um, at points. 
what are kind of the levels of the tops of the peaks in that area? Do they get over 11,000, 12,000? No, not really. Um, most of them probably peak out maybe close to 11,000. Okay. So that probably wasn't too far off from where we were. There's a few peaks, you know, in the greater area that are over 13, probably even some I think are over 14, but where we were at, it was mostly 10 to 11,000 for most of the peaks. How hard was it for you guys to find water? It was pretty hard. Um, <laughs> well, we had gone in the exact same spot the last time that we went to Colorado. And so we had kind of these streams picked out where we knew there'd be a trickle of water coming down the mountain. And we got all the way up in there when we packed in the first day and those creeks were just bone dry. Uh, and they were the only water sources that we knew about at the time. So that was kind of a, a little bit of a, a stop and think about what we need to do next type of moment. We ended up just kind of doing a little bit more scouting that first day and we ended up finding some water. And then it turned out it rained that first night. And then those creeks that were dry had a little bit of water in them the next day. Yeah, that that can be a, a daunting moment when you realize that where you expect there to be water is not water. Right. Well, and the other thing too is a lot of the elk that we would see in those areas are way up high. And there's hardly any water up high. I mean, the elk will be down lower at night, obviously. But where they're actually at, you know, bedding and, and doing the, most of their running activity during the day, it's you have to bring the water up. So that kind of limits where you can camp, kind of forces you to camp down on lower elevation and hike up, at least yeah, for the outside things. Yeah, or really spend a lot of time to pack water back up to camp on, you know, the very first day of the hunt. Dedicate a day just to packing water back to camp so you have camp water. Right. Yeah, you'd almost have to do it for certain areas. But anyways, that, that Colorado trip for us, first successful trip to Colorado is our third time out there. The first time we went to Colorado was during a rifle hunt for elk. And one of the guys in our group missed a bull, or excuse me, missed a cow. He had a cow tag uh, that first year. And the other guy and myself didn't shoot at any. Uh, the second year we went out, I did archery. The other guys did muzzleloader. And I was drawn back on a cow, decided not to shoot. And had called in a bull up at high elevation that I don't think he had a ton of cows with him. He might have had a couple cows, but he ended up getting my wind as the, the thermal switched. Uh, I could see his legs moving through the timber, so he was close, but he never actually popped out, so I could see how big he was. This year was the first year we actually were successful. I had a mule deer tag. The other two guys were, again, doing the uh, muzzleloader out combo where one of the guys had a cow tag, one of them had a bull tag. And so I filled my mule deer tag on the second day, yeah, so it's uh, one thing I wanted to to dive into first is probably the the way the whole hunt for you came to a a climaxing moment when you took your shot. Um, it seemed like you were just doing B roll video and everything just fell together. Oh in yeah, that moment I got really lucky. Um, <laughs> that was that was not a skill, not a skillful move. Um, it wasn't like I did a a real nice long planned executed stock on a bedded deer. It was just me walking through a bunch of deadfall because the place that we're at is just completely filled with deadfall. There are areas that we almost have to avoid and walk around because it's like climbing through a jungle gym. And uh, I was just doing B-roll footage. I would set my camera up, climb over some logs, and then I would go back, pick the camera up again, find the next set of logs to capture some footage at. And I set the camera up and was prepared to go walk underneath. I don't know, it was probably like my fourth or fifth B-roll shot that I had filmed. And I got in front of the camera and all of a sudden there's a buck just standing there uh, in the timber. I don't think he could see me, but, you know, probably heard me at that time. And he just kind of circled around underneath me. And it was so thick that I couldn't really get a shot the whole time he was moving. But then uh, I finally got him to stop after whistling and, and trying to meep at him. I don't know what it is with mule deer if they don't stop when you meep at him. With whitetails, I can always go, and they'll stop almost 90% of the time. But that deer, I, I was whistling at him. I was meeping at him nice, louder, louder. He finally ended up stopping, and I had just enough of a lane between, like, a, a, an evergreen branch and another tree that was uh, fallen where I could fit the arrow in. I saw the lighted knock disappear right where I was aiming. And I thought, oh, great, this is a you know perfect shot. He did the, the double leg kick, took off into the deadfall, and uh, I'm thinking, okay, cool. So there'll probably be a, you know, 50, 60 yard tracking job. And then, uh, I probably wouldn't need to follow the blood. I'll just walk over to 
where I last saw him and I just expected him to be their dad. And uh, I probably took maybe 10 or 15 minutes just to kind of calm down and collect myself and pick the camera up and just started retracing the deer steps. I couldn't find the arrow. It appeared initially to be a pass-through and behind the deer was just a, a bunch of thick, you know, even more deadfall down in a, a little ravine. And I was like, there's no way I'd ever find that arrow if I started looking for it. So I just started following the blood. And it was kind of surprising because I was really struggling to find blood. Um, I was using a, an expandable broadhead that was an inch and a half in diameter, blade design that slides back. I'm thinking, well, it's odd. Um, but I know where I hit the deer and it's probably just one of those anomalies. And so I, I tracked him for probably 40 or 50 yards. And at some points I was on my hands and knees looking for pinpricks of blood, just kind of confused. And then I, I looked up at one point and I saw the deer standing there looking back at me. And at this point I was completely confused. I could see the spot where I hit him on the side of the deer. I could see the, the entry wound and it looked like a perfect shot. I'm like, what the heck was going on? So then I, I just, I got another arrow in him. It only hit three inches from where the first one hit, and that was the, the fatal hit. I think the first shot would have been lethal anyway, but what happened was the spot where I hit that deer on the first arrow was directly above, you know, kind of the, the leg bone. If you follow the leg straight up, and the arrow hit right in that triangular pocket of meat between the, like underneath the shoulder blade, but above that other leg bone. So kind of like you're perfect where you would expect the heart to be, and the heart actually had a nick on the backside of it from that first arrow. But he was just enough downhill of me, kind of like shooting out of a tree stand where if you hit him too low, you miss that backside lung. So what happened was the arrow went in, nicked the back edge of the heart, got that first lung, but didn't hit the second lung. And then it exited out kind of in the, the very low spot of that same pocket. So that's why there wasn't very much uh, blood on the other side of the deer either. The chest cavity is just full of blood. Yeah, so I don't really think it was like the broadhead's fault or anything that there wasn't a ton of blood. I think it was just where you hit them there. There's not, the blood has to go from the chest cavity through all that connective tissue, through all that muscle before it could actually leave the body. And I've had fixed blade broadheads do that too, where you're just following pinpricks of blood. If you hit them there, I've even had a heart shot deer once that I shot on the snow, uh, that didn't have any blood. I just followed the tracks until I found the deer and it was like a center punch heart shot. So I've seen stuff like this happen before, but it doesn't make you feel good when you're just looking and you're finding pinpricks of blood when you're expecting to see a lot more. But anyway, it was, you know, it wasn't very long and I recovered that deer and, uh, it was able to, was able to use the gutless method for the first time because here in Minnesota and when I've always hunted in Wisconsin, you can't really do the gutless method because on public land anyway, they always require you to pack out everything. You can leave the guts, but that's about it. If you leave the head or the spine, they consider that leaving the carcass, which is wow. generally illegal on public land. So you, and I think the rule is in place because you would get guys who would, you know, butcher their deer and then they would just go drop the carcass off at the parking lot and it just, it doesn't look good. So I'm sure that's probably why the rule is in place. But, uh, yeah, if I wanted to do a gutless method, well, if, if I wanted to quarter a deer, let's put it this way, because usually quartering the deer is legal. You just can't leave the carcass. So if you were to quarter a deer, a whitetail at home, you would have to quarter it and bring out everything, including the spine, which almost kind of defeats the purpose of quartering out in the first place. Yeah, it really does. And then to make it even a step more goofy, uh, you have CWD laws now in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. So if you're transporting a deer back into my home state of Minnesota, you can't bring in any part of the spine. You can't bring any uh, brain matter. You can bring in a clean skull plate. You can bring in taxidermy. You can bring in meat, uh, but that's about it. So if I, like say for instance, if I drive 40 minutes to go hunt a piece of public land in Wisconsin for an evening hunt and I shoot a deer, I wouldn't just be able to throw that deer in the back of my truck and drive home and, and cut it up. I would actually have to gut the deer, drag it back to the truck, and then quarter it, put the meat in coolers, and then find a spot to actually dump off the spine and the head, either at somebody's piece of private land or like a landfill. That's all allowed. So it's kind of a an inconvenience for public land guys. And this is this is just me thinking here from a, a biological standpoint. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because say that deer did have CWD, 
um, and again, this is just a hypothetical situation, because you can't leave that spine on the ground in which that deer was harvested, uh, you could very easily be carrying CWD to a different piece of property or to a different area by moving that spinal cord from the property that was harvested from. So that's kind of interesting um, and real weird dynamic there. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's one of those laws that they just put in place to show that they're doing something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of those laws out there on the books. Well, and you can you can drop the meat off. You can drop the deer off at like a processor. But here's the issue that me and I know a couple of my friends have run into too is the game processors won't always be open. You shoot a deer in the afternoon, you bring it back to the truck and you call up the processor. Yeah, we're closed now, but you can bring it in first thing tomorrow morning. Okay, well, that doesn't help yeah. unless you want to spend the night. Or even on uh, opening weekend of gun season last year, I called four different game processors at 10 in the morning on opening weekend. None of them were open because it was a Sunday. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, we got a little off track there. <laughs> yeah, chase chase the rabbit through the bushes. Yeah, I would we'll be all right. I would prefer to do the gutless method if I were allowed to around home. That was my first time trying it, and it was significantly easier to get the deer from the side of the kill back to the truck. Significantly easier. I was able to do it in one trip, and I was able to get essentially all of the meat that I would have been able to get off the deer if I had just dragged it back to the truck and brought it home and skinned it in my garage. So did you, when you did the gutless method, did you debone it at the site or did you uh, just quarter it and then pack it out in quarters? I packed it out in quarters. And the only reason I did that was because um, I wanted to leave as much of the meat attached to the bone as possible for that first kind of 24-hour period just to prevent the the muscle shortening. Right. And make sure that meat doesn't get tough. Uh, I would probably do complete boned out quarter only if I absolutely had to, if it was hot and I was really long ways back in. Right. Yeah. I think, um, especially with elk, you'll probably have to do it with elk, especially warm temperatures, just cause you've got to get that, that giant hip bone, the femur out from around all that meat. Cause even mm-hmm. just quartering something like that, that bone can hold a lot of heat, um, and cause some of that meat closer to the, the bone to spoil. So that's kind of what, I didn't know what the temperature was. So that's why I wanted to kind of ask that. So. Yeah. It, actually it got pretty warm. Uh, it was like mid seventies during the days out there. Oh, wow. Um, and then at night it would be 38, 40 degrees is probably about as cold as we got. I think we did actually have some frost on the ground one morning. So quite a big temperature swing, which is the same thing we've experienced every time we've gone to Colorado, really cold nights and it gets pretty warm during the day. Yeah. And then you can have those days where they're not calling for rain and then it turns from rain to snow and you weren't expecting any of that. So yeah, I don't, we didn't get any snow. But it definitely rained a lot more this time than it did last time. The last time we were at Colorado in that exact same area, I think it sprinkled maybe like twice throughout the entire trip. Like barely enough where you might have had to put your rain jacket on for like 15 minutes. But this trip, there was at least two nights where it rained for several hours straight. And the storms out there are kind of weird. If you watch them on the radar, because I had 4G somehow out there, I'd you know be tracking the storms on my phone. And... They just appear out of nowhere and they just sit in the same spot. It's not like the storms around here where they're, you know, moving east to west or whatever. It's like they just grow and you can just see them. You know, there'd be like a huge storm cloud on a mountain 10 miles over that you're just watching. It just sits there. Uh, And it was the same thing where you knew that if it started raining, it was going to continue raining for quite a while. It wasn't like that cloud was just going to keep moving on. Yeah. Which I think brings us to a good segue um, to some of your gear. I know this was your first time using a hammock to camp with. Um, so I kind of, I'm kind of interested to see how that worked with it being rainy like that. Yeah. So for those who are completely unfamiliar with hammock camping, there's essentially three different parts that make a hammock system that you need to be able to hammock camp. One is obviously the hammock, but then the other two are insulation and weather protection for insulation for this hammock setup. I basically did, the lowest barrier to entry, which is just using the exact same sleeping bag and sleeping pad that I would normally use. In order to make that work, I actually had to take my sleeping pad and let out about half of the air that I would normally have in it because otherwise I'd be sliding around all over it. And then I actually put the sleeping pad inside of the sleeping bag and then I was able to sit in that hammock uh, a lot more comfortably. And then for the weather protection, a tarp is the way to go, but there's a couple different options for tarps. I did what's probably the 
simplest option, which is just like a square tarp, 9x9, set up like a diamond. The first night, the first two nights, I had it set up as kind of a, like a rectangle where the ridge line of the tarp went over the ridge line of the hammock. And there was a couple of times during that rainstorm, because this was a tarp that I had made myself, there was a couple of times where I'd get a little, you know, maybe like a drop every 45 seconds a minute, falling down on the sleeping bag. So that one night I just took my rain jacket and I just put it over the top of my sleeping bag and that solved that problem. But then we moved camp halfway during the trip and upon setting up camp the second time, I pitched that tarp in a diamond configuration where I just turned the whole tarp 45 degrees and I pitched it higher up. So I had a lot more headspace. And then I pitched the uh, corners of the tarp much higher as well. So it was kind of more like a canopy. I could sit in the hammock and I could see the view, uh, but all my stuff was staying dry. There was zero condensation. The wind was able to basically move and keep everything dry. So that was the dripping you were getting um, coming off your tarp was condensation from you being so close to the tarp and not enough airflow underneath of it? No, and I, I think it was actually just me doing a poor drive of seam sealing. <laughs> because on the other nights where it didn't rain, it was bone dry. I could even, you know, like if I were using a single wall shelter normally, when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd want to be really careful not to touch the wall of the shelter because I know that I'd, you know, get wet. Right. But with that thing, I could just, I could crawl out of my hammock and just stand up and kind of brush against the side of that tarp and it would just be bone dry, which there's just so much airflow the way it's pitched up above that hammock. That's one of the big advantages of it, I thought. Yeah, I think that's, to me, one of the most interesting things um, about the hammocks is, you know, being up off the ground, not having to worry about muddy boots or anything um, and having all that airflow with just, a like you said, a tarp over you. Yeah. I guess the downside of having the tarp pitched like that is that the nights where it did get really cold, like the night that we had frost, it was also very windy and my body was warm from my sleeping bag in the pad. My face actually got kind of cold just because the wind was whipping past it. So I had to put my balaclava on just to kind of knock down that, that cold wind. But if you're hammock camping in colder weather, they have other tarp setups that work better in those type of scenarios. The way that I had my tarp pitch was more of like a summer three season type of pitch. Right. Okay. Yeah. So just kind of, I guess, give us a quick rundown on, on most of the gear you had in your pack and then we'll kind of hit the highlights of what was the best and, and what was the worst and what you would change. Okay. So for the pack, I use the Alps commander frame. They make that in both just a frame version as well as a frame with a bag. I bought it with the bag and I have ditched the bag. Uh, sense. And what I do now is I just take a Cabela's whitetail day pack and I just lash it onto that frame. And I use that just, you know, literally as my day pack where on the hike in, I'll have that thing stuffed full and then I'll have other pieces of gear in dry sacks lashed onto the pack. And then once we get to like a base camp or spike camp, then I'll just dump everything off the frame and kind of reorganize that day pack for what I actually need. Uh, and that was the same thing I did last year. And there's really no reason for me to change it. I think it worked pretty well and it's a lot cheaper going that route. Whereas the day pack was like a hundred bucks from Cabela's and the, uh, frame, I think you can get it for about $80 on Amazon. So pretty reasonably priced option. And it works. I'd say this is probably works better for people who are actually going to set up a base camp versus people that are just going to hunt with camp on their back. There's probably better options. I would probably go with like an internal frame pack, one of the more expensive ones, if we were actually moving around a lot more, you know, for a spike camp like we had, it worked just fine. Uh, and then for the, the shelter and sleeping, so for the specifics, the tarp that I had, that 9x9 tarp, was one that I made from 15 denier sil poly that I ordered from Ripstop by the roll.com. And that was that tarp that I put together like in the week leading up to the hunt and I didn't really have a chance to <laughs> test it out. Uh, so that was a little risky, uh, six mini groundhog steaks from MSR. And then I got some, it's like a ultra high molecular weight polyethylene or something guy line off Amazon. It was pretty cheap. It was like 10 bucks for 50 feet of guy line came with a little aluminum tensioners. And then the hammock that I had was a, Eno double nest and there's better options for, you know, probably most of those things that I used, but the stuff that I had worked just fine for now. And if I continue to do that hammock camping, which I think I probably will just because the comfort level was so much higher than I've ever had 
with any other ground sleeping experience, then I'll probably upgrade some of those things. Uh, for the sleeping bag, I had an old Sierra Designs Ridge Runner 15 degree bag, which was something that I got from Sierra Trading Post on clearance. I probably paid 90 bucks for it. Originally, probably a you know, $160, $170 bag. The uh, sleeping pad that I used is an X-Ped winter light, medium wide. And then I had the little schnozzle thing that they used to inflate it. And then the dry sack that I used for the uh, sleeping bag was a Cedar Summit Event 13 liter. And so that whole sleep system, uh, including the shelter, was roughly 6.6 .6 pounds, which is heavier than, it's not an ultralight setup. Um, I think sometimes when people think about hammock camping, they think about trying to be ultralight, but I mean, realistically, you could drop the hammock and just sleep on the ground under the tarp and you'd be a lot lighter, but the hammock adds a lot of comfort. So shelter and sleeping is something where I think every year, my shelter and sleeping portion of my gear list has gotten a little bit heavier, but each time I've gotten more and more comfort out of it. And I think comfort's something that, especially when you're spending numerous days in the backcountry, is is real critical because um, your sleep's the best rest you're going to get. And to wake up sore or you know not have a pad that's big enough or, or wake up cold, it's just going to make for a long seven or eight days on the mountains. Right, exactly. And that first year we went out to Colorado, I tried to be ultralight. I had a a little one-man uh, solo ultralight tent. I had just a three-quarter length closed cell foam pad. And I was I had sore hips, sore shoulders. I was cold. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, you know, probably the one of the worst experiences that you could have um, other than probably being wet. That'd probably make it worse. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, this, I mean, this year, honestly, like, I felt like I was as well-rested as if I would have slept on a bed at home, which I think is probably one of the main reasons I will continue to, to work with the hammock system to try and improve it. Cause I think it's, it's the way to go for comfort. And then moving on to, I guess the, the food kits, cooking and drinking. Again, this is the same system I used last year. I haven't made really any changes to it significantly because it works so well. It's a fire maple 300 T Hornet, which is a 1.5 ounce stove roughly. And then it just works with those little um, you can get them from like Jetboil or MSR, basically any company who makes them just a little isobutane canister. And then for the water filter, I have a Sawyer squeeze, not the mini one, just the regular one. And then I have a built-in hydration bladder in my day pack for the utensil. I have a foldable spoon from MSR. Although one of the guys, Matt had a sea to summit long spork. So it was even longer than my foldable spoon. And it also had kind of a curved like almost like a ladle it's shaped more like a label than a ladle than a spoon and so that thing actually looked like it would be the ticket for eating out of the uh, mountain house style meals yeah with some of the mountain house bags are you know can be really tall so unless you want food all over your hands you know the longer the spoon or fork that you have the better off you're going to be or you can just cut your bag down which is what i end up doing half the time <laughs> yeah i guess the the one change i did make was just my overall filtering setup I brought, instead of just using that squeeze as intended, where you would just take one of their dirty bags, fill it up with water in the creek, and then squeeze it through the filter into your clean reservoir. What I did this time was I took the bite valve on my hydration bladder and I cut it off and added a quick disconnect. And then I added a little piece of hose to the output line of the, the filter and added a, a quick disconnect. So I could essentially pop off my mouthpiece and pop on the clean end of the filter so I could just squeeze directly into my water reservoir. Were you doing squeezing or were you doing gravity flow? I was doing gravity this time. In the past I've done yeah. squeeze and it's not fun when the filter gets, you know, to day six or day seven. Yeah. Um, so I took a three liter platypus bag and I cut off, you know, the very end of that, cut off the bite valve and put on, um, Sawyer makes a little adapter so you can go into the dirty side of the filter. So I would fill that thing up with water, that three liter. And then I would basically have the filter in line. And then on the output side, it would be going directly to my clean reservoir. And I would just take the dirty bag and I would hang it up on a branch. And then the, uh, the pressure from gravity was enough to force the water through the filter. Did you have any type of like a, a Nalgene bottle or anything like that for like a drink additive or something like that with you? No, I didn't. I just had that one reservoir inside my pack. 
And I was thinking while I was out there, I don't know why I didn't do this, but all I would need is one little additional uh, adapter with a bite valve. And I would have been able to basically use both of those reservoirs. Um, whereas the way I had it set up, that platypus dirty bag, I didn't have any way to close it off. So if I filled it up, I either had to use it to, to flush it through the, the filter or I needed to empty out the rest of it. I had no way to keep it contained. Whereas if I would have just had some way to close it off, I could have been carrying around an extra three liters of dirty water, but water that then I could, you know, at any time hook up the filter and, and squeeze it through. Yeah. So with mine, I have the MSR as a dirty bag. So it has a, a quick disconnect at the bag. So when you, when it's disconnected, it still holds dirty water. And then all you have to do is when you put the valve in, then it starts the flow of water. Um, so that way I can carry an additional three liters of dirty water um, back up to camp to be able to filter at a later time. Hmm. I should look at my platypus bag. I wonder if it has something similar. I didn't even think that was an option. Yeah, some of them um, are that way and some of them are not. Some of them, if you don't, when you fill it up, it'll just start pouring out. And some of them have a valve stop in there to where if there's nothing plugged into the quick disconnect, it will stop the flow of water. So that way you can fill it up as a dirty bag. Hmm. Yeah, that definitely seems like the way to go. Because uh, then I, I realized that I was, as I was out there, how, how basically dumb it made me feel that I could only carry two liters of water <laughs> at once when I had the opportunity to carry five, especially when <laughs> water is so hard to find up there. All right, let's take a brief pause from the podcast to say that after recording, I did check my three liter platypus Big Zip LP and the flow of water does stop when you disconnect the hose. So I had the ability to carry around up to three liters of dirty water in addition to the two liters of clean, but I didn't know it. I feel like an idiot, but now I know better. And so do you. Back to the podcast. Yeah, and especially those times where, like the last trip I went on, it was probably a mile to water and it was dropped a lot of feet in elevation. So it, it would be bad to have to go down there to get water with, for two liters every other day basically and then you walk back um, up would've... you walk back uphill to get to your campsite and you're thirsty enough to drink all that water you just filtered it, exactly <laughs> so yeah um, i guess let's transition into your clothes um what kind of base layers did you have and um, outer layers and, and yeah so for the most part my clothing system was very similar to what i used the last time it's a big mix of uh both cabela's and first light for the most part for my socks i actually used uh Fitz brand merino wool blend socks just brought a I think three or four pairs of those uh, I used wool x brand merino wool uh, boxers and then I used the first light Allegheny well I shouldn't say I used it. I didn't really use it that much I brought the first light Allegheny base layer merino wool bottoms and they basically spent most of the trip inside my pack the only times where I did break those out were basically just to uh, have something to sleep in on those rainy days where my pants are soaking wet. Are those the, the three quarter length ones that no. they have? No, they're full length. Uh, oh, okay. I think I can't remember if they're 170 gram or, or 230. And then for the pants, I had, uh, my Cabela's stocking pants, which are the same pants I use for turkey hunting. I use them for scouting. I use them for early season deer hunting. They're kind of, they're like a nylon blend, like nylon spandex. I can't remember the exact ratio, but they're four way stretch. And they're pretty tough. So I know there's a, a few Western clothing brands that make pants that are similar to those. And I think it's definitely the way to go for having to climb over all that deadfall. Just having that extra mobility in the hips was pretty big. And then for, yeah, so for the lower body, I mean, for the most part, I was just wearing those pants. They weren't insulated at all. Just a pair of socks and my boots. I'm still working on the same pair of boots I've used for every Colorado trip. And they're starting to get pretty worn down. The Cabela's Mindel Ultralights. And I think those might be, I guess, the, the boot that I always continue to buy in the future just because they fit my feet so well. Never get any blisters. Um, they're always super comfortable. So I'll probably buy another pair of those once they finally hit the dirt. But what's interesting, though, is Matt, he bought a pair of those same exact boots after I raved about them so much, and he didn't like them. He returned them and uh, got a pair of the Mindel Perfects. Yeah, I think it's it's all about how it fits your foot and your style of walking. Like for me, I I wear boots every day, but I can't stand to hike in boots. I almost have to wear a trail runner type shoe to be able to walk in them in the mountains. 
Um, so that was one thing, you know, I, the trail runners I have were not waterproof. So when I got rained and snowed on, it was a miserable hike out with really cold, numb feet. Oh, yeah, I bet. And then for upper body, I had a lot more layers. So for upper body, for base layers, I had a Cabela's trauma, or not Cabela's, I had a first light trauma, not the hoodie, just the, the quarter zip. And then I had a layer over that as kind of an insulating layer was my Cabela's Stand Hunter fleece, which is a really heavyweight, high pile fleece. It's usually something I'll use as like an insulating layer if I'm going ice fishing or late season deer hunting, but it's got a nice like dark green pine pattern. So I don't, you know, have any issues using that as just like a solid outer layer, which I used quite a bit. So essentially for my, my outer layers, I would have during the day, just that base layer, that merino wool. And then early in the mornings and late at nights, I'd put on that stand hunter fleece. And that's basically what I use for 90% of the trip. When it rained, I had a Cabela space rain jacket that I would throw on. Really wasn't doing a lot of bushwhacking with it. So uh, durability isn't, uh, wasn't really that critical of a thing. So the Cabela space rain, even though it's kind of a lighter, more fragile jacket, worked fine in that scenario. I brought the uh, first light wind river balaclava, which is merino wool. And I basically brought that just because I didn't have the, uh, the hoodie for the trauma. So that's kind of the way that I bought them. I bought the Allegheny or I bought the, uh, the trauma. And then I realized I wanted something for my head too. So then I bought the balaclava, but if I would have bought them, I guess from the start, if I would have changed something on there, I would have just got the, uh, the hooded trauma for or base layer, as opposed to those two separate garments. I also brought a down vest, but that never left my pack. <laughs> and like I said, the coldest, I think it got was, you know, probably 35 degrees in that ballpark, but for the most part, it wasn't that bad. It was, you know, maybe mid forties, I'd say most mornings. Okay. And hat wise, would you, would you bring to cover your noggin? Uh, I bought a $5 kind of light mesh camo hat from fleet farm. That's what I wore for most of the trip. And then I slept in the, uh, Numa brimmed beanie, which is Merino wool. Yeah, I think those brim beanies are the way to go. Uh, I've got the older first light version that was heavier duty. Um, those things are just, they're amazing to have. Yeah, they get a little bit warm for me just walking around. Um, so I usually, like, I'll pull it up to the top of my head and just kind of let it rest on top of my head. And then once I actually get to where I'm going, then I'll pull it back down over my ears. But I like the way they fit my head, and they're comfortable. And for the most part, they're pretty, mo or pretty moisture and temperature regulating. All right, so let's um, let's move on and let's go through some of just the other miscellaneous kind of stuff you carried in your in your pack. Um, you know, pack towels um, and just essentials that you had. Yeah, so I had uh, a small towel from REI. Uh, it doesn't take up much space in your pack at all. It only weighs like an ounce. Didn't really use it for much other than uh, just kind of cleaning out the inside of my cook kit. That's basically all I used it for. I had uh, a toothbrush, just a small little camping specific one that I probably got at REI, weighs about an ounce. And then for like TP wipes, I actually had a guy, there's a, a company called Butt Valet and they make biodegradable wet wipes, individually packaged. And one of the guys that works there is a big elk hunter. And he saw my gear review from last year and he sent me some of those wipes to try out. So I didn't bring any toilet paper at all. And I got to say <laughs> the wet wipes are the way to go uh, for sure. And I was able to use them also to kind of wipe the blood off my hands so that kind of multi-use. And then you don't have to worry about obviously throwing away uh, wipes that are going to sit in the woods for years and years and years. Yeah. To me, the only downfall about bringing just dedicated wipes is if you get in a pinch, you can't burn them because they're wet. <laughs> versus toilet paper you can use to start a fire if you have to yeah that's a good point i didn't actually bring a map up in the woods speaking about you know like survival <laughs> i uh well the the thing about the place we were hunting is there's enough big landmarks around and i I feel like i've studied that area enough on topos and i had my phone with me with an enormous amount of backup battery juice so i figured if my phone were to die uh i have my gps if my GPS were also to die, then I can just make my way downhill. I'm going to run into the road if I keep going down an elevation. So 
I actually didn't, yeah, I didn't bring the map up. I had a compass though, a compass and a whistle and just a little Bic mini lighter that I used to light the stove and could use to, to start a fire if need be, as well as stormproof matches, three millimeter accessory cord. I had about 50 feet of that, some little uh, tinder balls that I can use to help start a fire. For first aid, I had a Wild Hedgehog Get Home Alive Light kit. I did a video review on that one a while back. And then just kind of your emergency space blanket and a small uh, handsaw uh, to kind of top out my essentials list. And basically the handsaw was just if I needed to uh, cut up any branches off, I needed to start a fire. Or if uh, I could have used it, I guess, to to cut bones or cut the antlers off the, the skull for that deer. But I ended up just carrying the whole head down and using a larger saw to do that once I got back to the truck. For okay, yeah. Let's, um, yeah, just move on to your kill kit. Yeah, so for the kill kit, I used a Havilon Piranha. I think I had five or six extra blades. I think it took me basically just one blade to get through that whole deer. I just put on a fresh one when I started, and I just used that same one the entire time. Black Ovis game bags, the medium size for the deer. I also brought a set of the large bags, and I made one of the other guys carry them and just in case they got an elk. Um, but they seemed to work all right, and it seemed like a, a big step above like the Allen you know, cotton-style game bags that we had brought in years prior. They worked well to keep the flies off. They were kind of a nice light material, didn't take up as much space in the pack, and you know they were reflective and had a bunch of blaze orange on them, so... If I were to walk away from the kill site, it'd be easy to find. Probably the biggest part of my gear list that most people aren't going to have is the electronics. I have seven pounds of electronics that I'm carrying around with me at all times, most of which is camera gear, and that's even with skimping on the camera gear. So headlamp, to start that off the electronics discussion, I bought a roughly $20 headlamp from Amazon. Heimdall is the brand, H-E-I-M-D-A-L-L. -L. It's just over an ounce, 115 lumens on the brightest white mode, uh, IPX6, water resistant. But what I wanted in it and what I liked about it is that it ran off of a single AA battery as opposed to like AAAs. And so that's the same batteries that my GPS runs off of. So it's a lot easier for me to just pack in a bunch of AA's as backup. And then that headlamp also had a red mode. Although to be quite honest, the red mode is pretty much worthless for being able to see where you're going. It's really only useful for, you know, having a light that's on for other people to see you. But they, right. Or be able, to, be able to read a map or something close to your face. Right, right. Yeah, once you get about a foot away from your face, it's tough to, to do anything really useful with it. But the white modes of the headlamp, you know, has your, your high, medium, low, and the strobe. That was actually better than I expected in terms of the brightness. For... Uh, my GPS, I had a Garmin 62S, and both of the other guys that I was with also had Garmin 62Ss. And one thing that we, you know, kind of thought about while we were out there was it would be nice if you're in a group like that, if everybody had, like, Garmin Rhinos, where you have the ability to see where everybody is at all times. Because it was, you know, you know, we had, like, you could use your cell phones to, you know, get in touch with people. The other two guys hardly ever had their cell phone on just to conserve battery. And you can use walkie-talkies, but for whatever reason, the walkie-talkies that we have don't get very good range out there. You can be three-quarters of a mile away from a guy with a you know 20 or 30-mile range walkie-talkie and just barely be able to make out what he says. So being able to have the rhinos would have been, uh, I think, a nice benefit. There was one time where... You know, Matt and, or Travis and I had gotten back to camp about an hour after dark. And usually the third guy, Matt, is like the first one back every time. And we sat there for about a half an hour and we still didn't see him. I texted him. Travis tried getting a hold of him via walkie-talkie. Couldn't get a hold of him at all. Uh, and so we started getting worried and trying to figure out what we needed to do next. Well, if we would have had the Garmin Rhinos, we would have been able to see he was actually still on his way back. Or we would have been able to see if something had you know, gone terribly wrong if he was, you know, just a dot that wasn't moving. Right, yeah. I can see how that, that could be extremely beneficial, especially, you know, 
you said there's three avians and two of them were muzzleloader hunting and you were with a bow. So, I mean, obviously you could have heard them shoot, but if you would have, you know, if you'd have been out there elk hunting and you would have shot something, it'd have been, they wouldn't have come looking for you knowing you shot something. Right. Exactly. Uh, and it was kind of funny because after I shot the deer and I, you know, did the initial quartering of them, I heard a bugle that sounded kind of goofy. And so I, f- <laughs> I figured that was probably one of the guys. And so I, I took out a, a reed and, and bugled back at him and we kind of met halfway and I talked to him for about, you know, 30, 35 seconds before I finally realized that I had blood all over my hands. <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely something we could have done better was the uh, communication. I th- at that place where we went, the cell phone reception was good enough that we could get by with just using cell phones and just turn them on at specific times of the day and bring backup banks for the, uh, for the power. And I think that would work just fine. Um, the Garmin rhinos would have been a step up for sure. And, uh, the walkie talkies, I don't know. I, I feel like the cell phones did better out there than the walkie talkies, but that's definitely not going to be the case everywhere for camera gear. I basically brought just two cameras, the same two that I brought the last time we were out in Colorado. One was a head mounted camera, which is a Sony AS 100 V. And I actually didn't use that one a whole lot this trip. The one I used for most of the trip was a Sony HDR CX 240, which is a small camcorder, just kind of one of your consumer grade, probably $179 new. I had gotten it used on eBay for like 83 bucks. Uh, so if guys are out there, you know, looking to get a camcorder, I get questions like this a lot. Well, what do you think about this camcorder? It's usually something in like the, you know, one to $300 range. Well, if you watch this video, that's about the quality you can expect. Um, when I watch it, I kind of cringe knowing how it compares to my other cameras. Uh, but you can definitely still get the story across. The dynamic range is not good. Uh, the low light is not good. The zoom is pretty good, but you lose the quality kind of breaks down a little bit. So, and maybe next year I'll, I'll bring my nice camera. We'll see. The big thing is I just didn't want to bring a thousand dollar, you know, camcorder out there when I'm not going to really have any protection for it other than like a, a plastic like a dry bag basically if it starts raining and then it right yeah that would be kind of um worrisome to have to be worrying about that all the time um you know trying to get film but trying to protect your camera just as much Mm -hmm. well like the solo hunter guy tim burnett obviously he's probably if you're gonna pick somebody to look up to in that regard i don't know if you watch that show on tv or not but he carries, yeah, he carries some pretty good camera uh, gear up into the mountains and, and still films himself, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, some of those guys, though, have – I know even the Gritty Bowman they've mentioned they've went through numerous cameras trying to do what they do um, just by, you know, getting them damaged and getting stuff – dirt and stuff in them and just yeah. them failing. So, Well, at one point in the trip, I was sitting down next to Matt, and he set his backpack down took his hand off it and it started rolling and he wasn't able to catch it right away. And the backpack stopped about 300 feet down the hill. Uh, so no. <laughs> imagine if that was your camera. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess now we can kind of talk about a little bit more about your hunting gear. Um, you know, maybe what calls you had. I mean, we, we know a little bit about your bow setup. Um, you've done a couple of reviews on that, but yeah, just kind of fill us in on what other hunting gear you had with you. Yeah. Not a whole lot, to be honest. I had, uh, I guess, well, really no calls for mule deer, but I had brought some reeds for elk just in case I was going to need to call for those other guys. And I brought the, uh, the bugle tube from elk nut as well. But really that was, I mean, that's pretty much all I had for hunting specific gear. I didn't even really bring a wind, a wind checker this year. I had planned on bringing some milkweed, uh, but that was one of the things I had forgotten in the haste to pack before the trip. Um, I had a range finder, uh, I bought the vortex ranger 1500 this year. And I've been a pretty big fan of that. And then for binoculars, I have a pair of Stierka 8x42. And I just use the bino harness that came with them. And those are the, the S9 versions. And those I've been very impressed with so far. So you just, you, do you like running just the standard bino harness that comes with them? Or, or what's your thoughts on something like a, well, I know, mean, Alaska Guide Creations? It's the one that came with those binoculars is not designed to be on the same level as some of those other ones that you can buy. It's basically just a, you know, like a shell with a zippered top 
Um, and then I replaced the straps that had come with black straps and I just cut them off and sew it on some tan straps just because I don't like black straps for whatever reason. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then I took some stealth strips and I covered the face of it to cover up the logo just cause it was kind of like a, I don't know. I felt like it had a lot of contrast in it and I just wanted to kind of tone it down a little bit. Um, and just the, the fabric of it wasn't super soft either. It's like a, a cordura or like a, a heavy nylon. So if you brush your hand against it, it makes a little bit of noise. Uh, but after those couple mods that I did, I felt fine using it. Uh, the only, you know, difference I guess between what I used versus something that you could pay a lot more money for and get a better bino harness was I had really no way that the, the binos were connected to my body. They were just sitting open in that case. So I could pull them out and look through the binoculars and then when I want to set them down, I would just have to set them back in the pack. So if I dropped them, they would be, you know, on their own. Right. And I hadn't really, you can't, in the place where we were, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for long range glassing. Most of the stuff that we were glassing was under 200 yards. And some of it was less than that. There's only a few places where it was, you know, really open enough and, and kind of those larger meadows where you could really be able to sit down with like a tripod and, and set the binoculars up and actually do some, some real glassing. Yeah. So now that we've kind of went through all your gear, we got to go through obviously the, the two main questions. What was your best piece of gear or your best that you would take with you guaranteed next time and your worst piece of gear that you're going to look at reevaluating? Sure. Uh, so I, I'd say the most promising thing that I had this year uh, was my sleep system, I think, with the hammock. I think I was, after day two, cursing myself for bringing it along, but it really grew on me after that. And by the last day of the trip, I'm thinking, like, I don't know why I haven't done this before. Um, to the point where I've already ordered a DIY underquilt kit from Ripstop by the roll. I have that sitting in my basement that once I get some free time this winter, I'll, I'll sew up together and then I'll probably buy like an enlightened equipment top quilt or something like that just to kind of eliminate the sleeping bag and the, the pad and actually go, uh, more full bar with the hammock setup and the, get all the advantages that you can get from them. The piece of gear that, Hmm, my least favorite, there wasn't a lot of things really that I just couldn't stand on this trip. I know there was a piece of gear that I was sorely missing. So I could probably touch on that. And that's basically something to sit on. Uh, since I was hunting mule deer and not elk, I did a lot of time sitting in the mornings and the evenings where I would basically not necessarily sit in glass, but try and find a pinch point similar to as if I were whitetail hunting and just sit there and wait for a game movement. And especially with a bow, it's really awkward to find a spot on a sloped hill where you can sit comfortably and still be able to draw your bow back and shoot with minimal movement. With a gun, it's a little bit easier because you can just sit against a tree and like as if you're turkey hunting. But with a bow, you can't really do that. So what I would have brought is probably the, my sit drag from, I think it's Easy Hunter is the brand. And I would have just used that at ground level. Just had like a like a nylon daisy chain or something to, to tether around the tree and then just clip that sit drag into it. Just because that way it doesn't matter what kind of slope I'm on, I'm able to sit a lot more comfortably. I'm not having to worry about my bottom cam hitting the dirt and it's very minimal movement to actually draw back and shoot and I can hide behind the tree as opposed to being uh, kind of in front of the tree. So there would have been a lot of advantage to that and I would have been a lot more comfortable. That's definitely something I'm going to bring along next year. For the muzzleloader guys, one piece of gear that I think would have probably been beneficial for both of them would be a rifle cover. You know, with the amount of rain that we had this year being significantly greater than the amount we had last year, it seemed like both of them had quite a bit of trouble uh, keeping the moisture out of their guns. And I think they were using, you know, either duct tape or electrical tape to kind of plug the end of the barrel that they would remove before they would shoot. But I mean, even after one of the longer rainstorms, I remember Travis removed his breech plug to check his powder and his powder was all wet and, and clumpy and he had to reload his gun. And I think overall, the both of them had to reload a few times throughout the trip just to make sure that they always had dry powder. And I think a rifle cover 
you know, kind of like the full length ones that you can get from, you know, like Timbernet with the, the Solo Hunter website. I think something like that would have been definitely beneficial. And I actually have one of those. If I would have known it was going to be that big of a deal, I would have just brought mine along for one of them to use. All right. Yeah. So I guess talking about next year, um, are your plans to do the same thing next year? You're going to go after mule deer? You're going to go after elk? Uh, same area, new area? Well, we've been talking about it and the next time we go to Colorado, we'll go back to the same area. I'm still not sure if I'm going to get uh, just a mule deer tag or just an elk tag, or if I'm going to get both. This year's trip kind of turned me on to mule deer hunting a little bit. I think there's, I obviously just got a, you know, just the tip of the iceberg of, I think what is available in the mule deer realm. Um, but I thought it was fun and I was able to, uh, cat or utilize a lot of the things that I've learned as a whitetail hunter versus with elk. It's just a whole different ball game. And we definitely saw a sign of some very large bucks out there, uh, much bigger than I would expect to see on a typical public land hunt here in Minnesota or in Wisconsin. So I think if we went back there and focused on mule deer, I'd probably challenge myself to try and go after one of those bigger bucks. But at the same point, I pro I still want to be able to get an elk down. I'm over two on elk now. Uh, so I'll probably get the uh, elk 101 course. I already bought some, I think, six or eight new reeds to try out and just kind of get better between now and then. But in terms of where we'll actually go, so that's the next time we go to Colorado, but we might not go back to Colorado next year. Matt and I each have two points built up for Wyoming, so we could probably get a general tag for Wyoming. Uh, and we've done some research on where to go once we do go to Wyoming. Um, and then there's also the option of, I guess, Utah. So I haven't, yeah. I haven't quite figured out what I'm going to do yet, but I got some time to figure it out. Do you know when the application is due for Utah or is it um, just over the counter? I can't remember. So there's one unit that's over the counter that you can buy. Um, that's for archery only any sext, um, which is called the Wasatch front, which is what I'm hunting. I just bought a leftover tag cause I don't have enough points to draw. And I think, um, depending on what unit you want to put in, depends on what, how many points you want to need to build up like anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. Um, is there anything gear wise, since this is the DIY sportsman, um, that you can see being a DIY to save money versus buying, or is there gear that you say to buy versus doing DIY on? Like you did your DIY tarp for your shelter, obviously. Um, is mm -hmm. that something that you would recommend people looking into compared to buying? Well, I mean, it depends on how much free time you have. That tarp probably took me four or five hours to put together, which if you're like a, you know, working a standard work week and you got other things going on in your life, that might actually take you, you know, a week and a half, two weeks to actually get completed. And that's probably the most simple DIY type of tarp that you can build, but you definitely save money and you can make it exactly how you want it with the exact dimensions that you want versus if you were to just buy the tarp, you obviously have it right away, but you're going to spend more money. Probably a more extreme example would be like a teepee. You know, you look at some of the, you know, like the four man, uh, pyramid style teepees, you're looking at a significant chunk of change. Uh, whereas if you're to put one together, you can save tremendously on the material costs, but you're looking at maybe four times as much sewing as I did to put together that tarp. So, if you have the time, I think it's definitely worth it. And I think it's, it, I don't know. I just kind of enjoy the feeling that you get from using material or gear that you put together yourself. But I think people just have to kind of analyze that individually. The other thing that you could probably, that I've seen a lot of DIY builds on is a wood stove. You can get those titanium wood stoves to put in like your teepee shelters. I've even seen some people put them in hammock shelters and, uh, you'd have to do it with a full tarp that goes all the way to the ground. Right. But, um, yeah, you can make those and save a lot of money, but again, it's, they're kind of finicky just in terms of all the little intricacies that you wouldn't think of when you start the build that you actually have to nail to get it to actually work right. And some people make sleeping bags and some people make quilts beyond that. I mean, with Western hunting, it's, it's more of, uh, technical gear that you have to have, like your spotting scope, your tripod and stuff like that. Um, so there's not a lot that you can do DIY outside of your shelter just off the top of my head. I mean, cause most of it's, 
you know, your backpack, I guess you may be able to, but that would be a lot of time and effort to do something like that. So to me, most of, most of the Western hunting is more things you're, you're going to have to buy. And again, you don't have to buy top end of really anything other than boots. I would recommend, um, good boots cause you're going to hike a lot, um, uh, would be the best thing. But yeah, I mean, I don't think the Western kind of plays in as much to the DIY as say the Eastern side would, um, with being able to build, you know, camera arms and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, that's definitely probably true. So talking about saving money, let's go over the total cost for this trip. For annual recurring costs, we have the tags and the gas money, of course. And my mule deer tag was $389, I believe. The cow elk tag was just under 500 and the bull tags now in Colorado are 646 for non-resident. So that's a pretty big chunk of change in terms of your overall costs. And then for gas, I think I had determined that we spent roughly $375 total in gas there and back in my pickup, and they split that three ways, and we didn't stay at a hotel. We just switched off in shifts driving there. And then beyond that, the remainder of the costs are all just in your gear and your food, which I spent uh, a little over $100, I believe, with food, having a uh, freeze-dried meals once a day, and then mostly bars for the rest of my meals, you know, cliff builders, bars, and that type of thing. The one additional cost that we had on this trip with the meat was keeping it cool. Uh, so we went to town and bought the dry ice. It was maybe $60, I think, that we dumped into dry ice to keep that cooler cold. And it really just about got the meat completely frozen. So once that dry ice was all sublimated, the meat was able to act as its own block of ice and stay cool for the entire trip home. So we never really had to buy any ice to put in the cooler. So it kept things nice and dry, which was nice. But I think in hindsight, it probably would have been smarter to uh, bring some freezer packs, um, not just like ice bags, but the reusable freezer packs, the ones that have the, the chemicals inside of them that basically make the solution freeze at a colder temperature than water would. And then they don't get water all over the bottom of the cooler when they melt. Uh, but it's kind of also interesting to talk about just total money that you can sink into gear, uh, for a Western trip. Cause if I know if you're like me, uh, you live in the Midwest or you live out East and you're trying to read some of these Western hunting forums to try and figure out what you need to buy. And there's plenty of discussions on top end gear. And if you buy all top end gear, you're going to be spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for basically five days out of your 365 days. So you definitely don't need high-end gear to be able to make a trip like this. The other two guys that I were with used basically nothing special. They didn't really have to buy anything on top of what they already owned for camping, which was, you know, kind of mid-range, but above like Walmart quality, but not like uh, top-end, like none of them were spending $400 on a tent uh, type of gear. And really the, the big thing is you can pay a lot of money and be a little bit more comfortable on the walk-in, on the walk-out, you can have a little bit better performance, but if you're tough enough to handle a heavy pack, you really don't have to spend all that much money to get what you need. Maybe. Yeah. Chasing out West, chasing ounces ends up in a lot of dollars. Um, if you're trying to cut weight to go to, you know, a lighter pack or something like that, you're going to pay for it. Um, the ounces while you save, they cost you in dollars pretty quick. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially when you start looking at like down clothing and sleeping bags. Yeah, so and a lot of things that most Midwestern hunters have will work out west. Um, binos, bows, camo, most of that stuff will work and translate. The biggest things like your optics, your backpack, and your shelter typically are your big money spenders. And now on this trip, Travis bought a brand new muzzleloader, and it was a really nice high-end muzzleloader. And I remember at the end of the trip, he did say that in hindsight, he would have spent a few hundred dollars less on the muzzleloader and would have bought a little bit nicer sleeping bag just because he did get cold a few of the nights. Rain gear too. Uh, I think, I know Matt for sure. And I think Travis too, they just had like your frog togs that you could pick up at like Walmart. And that's what they use for rain gear. And they didn't really have any issues with it. They just don't pack down as small. And they're not as quiet and they're not as rugged or as breathable, but they still did the job. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you can spend hundreds of dollars on a small packable rain gear. That's going to do the same thing. The only difference is it'll packed down to the size of a baseball instead of the size of a, a softball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you're watching those guys walk off the mountain, 
if you're walking behind them, you can't see their head. It's basically just pack from like six inches above their head, like <laughs> all the way down to the back of their knees, it seems like. Just loaded down with gear, probably carrying 80, 85, maybe even 90 pounds on those, the pack end. But once you get above that initial hump, if you're doing a base camp, you can just drop most of that stuff off. So that's something to definitely take into consideration. Yeah, or if you're if you're camping from a truck or from a trailhead or something like that. Yeah, I just like spending money, so I, try, <laughs> I always upgrade my stuff. <laughs> yeah, so again, that's uh that's pretty much the wrap of of his hunt in Colorado. Um, you guys give us a like, um, find us on Facebook, um, the DIY YouTube channel, um, as well as on Instagram. Anything else you want to add, Garrett? No, I think that's just about it for now. Ready to get back into some solid whitetail hunts here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Yeah, season's opening up here for you guys. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck with that, and uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us.